0: welcome to the less spelling podcast where we redefine how athletes develop speed by giving them the tools to play faster hey guys welcome back this is um week seven of nfl combine training so as you can tell my voice is a little bit gone i'm a little stuffy um but it's been a very 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 good good couple weeks and to be honest like i'll give a quick i'll give a quick rundown just kind of like the highlights of these past couple of weeks and um, you might have seen some of this on twitter the first thing is like i i completely stopped drinking six months ago um for no reason really at first like I'd, i never really was a big drinker um i'd have a couple of drinks here and there but just completely removing that stimulus from my from my weekly or monthly routine has i don't know i mean it's it's greatly impacted my life just in terms of my recovery, in terms of my sleep, um, not interrupting during the weekend. So that's been awesome. Uh, Second thing I've been doing is training twice a day um, for the past seven weeks, which has just been awesome. Like my body's changed, Um, I'm strong again. Like I'm starting to hit numbers I used to hit in college. That's awesome. Uh, And then I've been pretty strict about my diet. Like I I never was big on dieting, but five or six days out the week, I'll diet pretty strictly know, on the weekend, I'll swear it's like this past weekend I, I had um this place called Doolins in LA, which was unbelievable. Um uh, and, and this place is like soul food. So like my favorite, favorite, favorite food. So that was awesome. Um and then, you know, the last thing is just getting sleep. Like I, I averaged seven and a half hours of sleep these past seven weeks. Whereas last year, as a total, I averaged under six hours. So it's it's been it's something that I've wanted to correct and self-adjust. And I just kind of was putting it off, to be honest. Like, it, you know, something that was like, ah, oh, I'm okay. It's not going to catch up to me. But it did catch up to me. And um, it, I definitely had symptoms of burnout and symptoms of, you know, not feeling like I could perform at a higher level, uh, which kind of leads me into the next segment. So this podcast is probably my favorite um, for a couple of reasons: uh, one, it's very relevant to what we're doing right now. Uh, two, there's a lot to learn, and three, I, I think there's a lot of misconceptions. So, what I'm going to talk about is the supercompensation um, of the entire process into the taper. So, what we're going to talk about really is the taper in the final stages, putting together a sprint program, and um, this is the period that most people will freak out most people will get nervous most people will change something up change their routine but this is really the time to lock in and um and, and really show your work so i'm going to dive in guys this is going to be an incredible podcast all right so typical tapers if you were to read books back in you know the 80s or um, read traditional strength training books like essentially you you have phases of periodization which culminates in the final taper so You go through a general prep period, you go through um, more specific prep, and then eventually you get to a period of, you know, 14 to 21 days where you just significantly pull back. Um, Now, the problem with this is that typically when people just pull back, they're pulling back on volume and intensity and maybe even density of training. Um, And what happens is a detraining effect follows. So one of the earliest podcasts I talked about, the detraining effects of speed if you're not training speed at least once every three to seven days you're going to lose your ability to contract the rate that you're contracting as well as lose the ability to to run as fast with the rhythm you need to have to get there so obviously we're in week seven of combine training at the end of week nine these guys were on a 40. when i first started training people for the for the nfl draft what i did was when i hit week seven i shut down for a couple days like I was like, all right, guys, nothing but massage and rest. Just rest, rest, rest. Now, the problem with just resting was I pulled back too much on intensity. I pulled pulled back too much on um, running fast. And what happened was by week nine, guys were pretty flat. And and when I say flat, they they were like, man, warmed up, did everything, but I just didn't have that pop that I had um, week eight or week seven. And it's like, damn, I extended that taper too long. So, you know, what I've done over the past years is, is developed a couple of protocols um, to really help me understand where our training is in those, in those seven weeks and then how much I need to pull back and what I need to pull back on. So the first thing, and I tweeted about this the other day, um, is I analyze a couple of things um, almost on a daily basis. Uh, and, and these things are, are very simple. Uh, anyone can really do it. And it's just going to help you understand where you're at. So, uh, what I was talking about was functional overreaching. So during that seven week period, my goal was to create an adaptation and in order to create an adaptation, I need stress. Um, and I need a lot of stress. So I can't go into this, this training process thinking I'm not going to stress these guys. Right. So, you know, the first thing that we look at is that stress is going to create an alarm. And that alarm is going to be some type of physiological symptom of, um, you know, stress, it's going to look like the guys are going to, you know, maybe be a little bit irritable or a little bit tired. Um, it might affect how they eat. It might affect how they sleep. That's the initial phase, right? Now, if I continue that stress without a recovery, what's going to happen is there's going to be a little bit of resistance, right? So this is called the alarm resistance exhaustion phase. Um, if there's resistance and it's not controlled and there is no recovery, I get into exhaustion. And when I get into exhaustion, my ability to produce performances that I was uh, previously capable of, it's not gonna be there. So what we wanna stay out of is, we wanna stay away from um, extensive exhaustion, essentially. We don't wanna keep them in that exhaustion phase. They will get there at certain points. But our, our real goal is to recover almost nearly as hard as we, as we train. So if we're training at a 10, we need to recover at a ten, which is extremely, extremely hard to do. So, the first thing that I use to to understand where I'm at is performance. So, if you think about performance, there's a couple ways to look at it. If we look at sprint performance, I only run really 95% above um, or above velocity one day a week. Um, we hit at least 90% every sprint day, and there's three sprint days. But hitting 95% or above is really the only, um, really only once a week. So I'm looking at performance of once a week. It's not frequent enough to to help me understand how an athlete's nervous system is responding to training. And it's not going to help me going to the next week because I need to know kind of where they're at before they get there. Right. So we need a physical marker. And this physical marker needs to be something that I can do consistently. Uh, so what we use is we use a counter movement jump, hands on the hips, and we use force plates. Um, now, if you don't have force plates, you could use a jump mat and just measure jump height. Um, you could use the app called the My Jump app, and you could look at um, you could look at time to take off, you could look at uh, jump height, you could look at a ton of metrics. What we use is Hawking Dynamics force plates, uh, and really what we look at is number one, it's jump momentum. If jump women was off either they either gained weight um lost weight or their jump height went up or their jump height went down so very simple metric you can track that all year uh, the second thing is modified rsi so it's going to tell me a couple things it's going to tell me um if their time to take off is compromised so are they taking longer to produce force um it's really going to tell me how reactive their system is and are they uh, is their nervous system really ready for the type of work we're gonna we're gonna do? Um, and propulsive net impulse, which is propulsive net impulse to me, uh, is is telling me how uh, an athlete really can accelerate their body. And um, you know, if once we start seeing these things down, then we start to understand like, okay, like they are not ready to train at the level we're we're gonna train at. So if you take our Mock combine, which happened this past weekend, what we had to do is we had to look at the guys and say, "All right, based on their best performance, this should be about eighty percent of their best right now." Basically, because we've been training hard enough that a twenty percent reduction in performance—not the twenty percent like your performances are going to climb by twenty percent—but everybody's feeling like they're about eighty percent at this point, which is a lot better than the week before. So, what we looked at was how close to their best performances were these metrics? And as we got into the training session and we did our jumps before we sprinted, everybody was like very close to their personal best. We're like, okay, their arousal was high enough that the guys were actually outperforming their initial state, which was they came in feeling like an 8 out of 10. And they, you know, by the time they were ready to run, the guys all felt like they were 9 or 10, right? Because we were able to to get that arousal state there. So the jumps help us make decisions like that. Now, the second thing we're going to look at is physiological performance. So ideally, we, we would use HRV. Um, and, and the reason why we use HRV is it's going to tell us how our nervous system is functioning, whether it's functioning in the sympathetic state or the parasympathetic state. Um, in the sympathetic state, it's very good for arousal. It's very good for um. You, you know, once you're in a sympathetic state, you are in training mode. You are ready to go. You are um, more aware. You are in um, heightened state of feeling like you are, you're in competition mode. Whereas par- parasympathetic state is more so rest and recovery. Now, the, the, the body can't get into recovery in a sympathetic state. So we need to, we need to get the body in a parasympathetic state, um, immediately following training. And you know, at night and even in the morning, a little bit. And yeah, we want to spike it and get into the sympathetic state. Um, but if we're in the sympathetic state too long, we start to produce cortisol, which is going to prevent us from actually getting into the hormonal effects that we want from training. So, what we're looking at with HRV is typically where is our nervous system? Is it recovering from previous sessions? So. A high HRV will tell us that there's a high variability between the heart rate, um, and which means that the, the body is getting, is getting into that parasympathetic state. That body's getting into recovery and relaxation. It's able to, to restore itself from the previous session. Now, if we check the HRV the next day after training and it is very low HRV, we know that the system is, has not recovered. We know that the system is still in a sympathetic state and it hasn't, it hasn't recovered and responded well from that training. That's one thing. It could have been also that the guys drank. So if you go out and you drink, which is another reason I stopped drinking, is it could greatly affect your HRV and put you in a sympathetic state. Or if you had bad sleep or stress. So that's an ideal world. Now, despite all the technology that we have and resources that we have, we weren't able to get 11 whoop bands for our inner draft class so what we use is subjective questionnaires any subjective questionnaires are very simple and pretty much anybody can do it we use google forms so on google forms what i what i did is i had a question for how many hours of sleep did you get uh, how what was the quality of your sleep uh, what is your mood what is your energy how much soreness do you have um, what is your fatigue Basically, a ton of questions that I did on a one to five scale. So five meaning uh, in the case of uh, energy, I have a ton of energy. One would be I have no energy. Soreness, I am extremely sore at five. One, I have no soreness. Fatigue, I I'm very, very, very tired. One, I have no fatigue, right? And, and obviously, people have been using self-reported questionnaires for years. What I did was I created a single readiness score based around the combination of these factors, and, it, and the easiest way to think about it is that um, a five for sleep is good, but a one for energy is bad, right? So, what I did was the positive ones I I, I use as a positive, and the negative ones I use as a negative to come up with an ideal number for the athletes to have to move on from training. So, based on this ideal number a less than 60 percent on that readiness score equals really a reduced training load like we we're, we're, if you score a 55 we know that there's something going on right and then we'll we'll usually go to the athlete and talk to them um which leads me to the number three thing that we do is we look for, for physical symptoms so when we talk to the athlete we look at uh, how are you feeling. when you know talk to me um oh, you know my knees a little hurt hair tricks bother me this kept me up last night. My girlfriend broke up with me. Those are all signs of uh, stress. And they're all signs of positive adaptation in the moment, but could be a negative adaptation if we push too much. So what I'm looking for um, on, on number three is really just a physical symptom. And typically for me, this is a conversation. This, is, this isn't this is technology, I'll, although I, w- I would like to use some technology, maybe a, a mega wave or something like that. To, to help me understand two so i can understand three better but um it's something physical right now if all three signs are present training is going to be significantly altered um and if it's present for more than one day now i'm going to start to alert the team say like yo what's going on with josh like what do we need to do to get him back into um you know higher performance better physiological performance and let's get these physical symptoms removed. Now, if it continues like three to five days, we completely rest that athlete. It's time to back off. Now, we we haven't had to do that in the past. Like it's it's been pretty chill. Um, usually a day of rest or two days of rest. would us say we could bring them back into homeostasis and get them back into uh, training mode. But there are, there are cases of guys that I've, I've heard of where, where they don't respond so what we're talking about really during training is we want to get into a state of overreaching and overreaching means that we've stimulated and stressed the body so much that the recovery is actually net negative um and we're getting to the point where we've actually trained them hard and hard enough that they can't recover from it um and what happens is, as, as we do this, we're, we're really pulling that rubber band back to create a positive adaptation. But because there's only a single peak in combine training, we know that we have to pull them back and stress them and overreach them uh, a little bit more than what we would do if we had a year plan or a year with an athlete. So when we're overreaching, we wanna stay in the stage of functional overreaching. So functional overreaching means that, um, although they are showing physical symptoms of fatigue, Um, Their jump heights might be down, HRV might be slightly down, but they're still performing at a high level, meaning their performances are still about where they should be. Um, And for me, what I look at is when an athlete and comes in, let's say they run a one seven ten. when they come in, they're actually going to get worse for a period of time before they get better. But the reason why they get better is not because they're at a higher state of readiness than they were at the beginning typically. Typically, it's because we made changes technical changes. So I know if I could keep them around their original time, um, or I keep them around, um, you know, if they keep them around one, seven during those phases, then I've made technical changes that mask, um, the symptoms of overreaching, but they are still overreaching based around our training program. Right. Now what's, what, what could happen is if I don't recover and I continue down this path, I could get into a state of non-functional overreaching. So non-functional overreaching means that they're no longer performing. um, And I typically will see some more negative symptoms in that athlete. Um, Something could be tight. Something could start to spasm. uh, They could get very moody. You know, they're not able to train at the level they were training at. And their performances were also showing that. So I want to stay away from non-functional and if I get into non-functional too long then I get into actual overtraining and if I actually overtrain an athlete, uh, it's gonna take a while it's gonna take a while to rebound that athlete back off so I don't have enough time to do that typically with the athletes that I have so I know that okay I need to I need to make sure that um you know we we're staying in functional overreaching which is why I use those three those three things now if if I look at what correlates to running fast out of those three signs. Um typically the the physical the actual um performances are gonna tell me the jump performances are gonna correlate pretty closely with where they're at from a velocity standpoint. And I overlay this last night, which I'll at some point post on Twitter, where I did jump momentum and sprint momentum over the course of the weeks. Now I didn't know if this would exactly correlate, but what I found was the highest jump momentums correlated with the highest sprint momentums throughout the entire process. So knowing this and understanding where guys are at, I know that if I can get them to spike the jump momentum, which means they're recovered enough to jump high and fast and extremely well, and they're typically gonna be in a state where they can run fast. Now, it's not always 100% accurate, But they're very, very, very correlated from the training um, this year. So maybe it's something that we're doing different. and Maybe somebody has a different opinion. Um, But yeah, it's been correlated. So anyway, getting back on track and on the point, we talked about our training. We talked about functional overreaching. We talked about the symptoms and signs that I might see during functional overreaching. And when we get into week seven, now we get back into the taper conversation so what do i do for week seven right now i told you the mistake that i made in the past i completely rested them now the next mistake i made was i completely changed everything i changed their training schedule i changed their training times i tried to give them more sleep i um changed the intensities like i started changing things the last two weeks and a lot of it had to do with my nerves going into combine And I was like, I got to get this done. I got to teach them this. I got to teach them that. Now, the truth is that there's not much you could teach once you reach this deep into the training process. Um, It's going to take them reps to understand what you're trying to teach. Obviously, there's pieces. Like today, we're going to teach them pieces of something that they haven't been doing well based around our mock common. But if I'm introducing new concepts or new stimuluses, it could have a negative impact on my final outcome. So I want to kind of keep it the same. Now, when it comes to the three things that we talk about, volume, intensity, and density, those are the, really the variables I want to look at uh, manipulating. So the first thing we look at is volume. Now my my main taper qualities are I'm going to, I'm going to deload on volume first before I touch intensity or density. So deloading on volume typically means pulling back thirty percent. And if I look at where does that 30% come from? Well, one, it comes from, um, it comes from all the reps that we would do typically in training to teach. So, uh, take out all the teaching, right. Um, it would, it would remove pretty much all the resisted running in week seven. Um, you know, so we get to the point where, well, this is actually week eight now, beginning week eight, uh, we're removing most of the resisted running. Or if there is resisted running, it's light. Um, our warm ups become very specific and very competition based. We're pretty much in a competition uh mode right now where they do their own warm ups and it's very high intensity. Um, it builds into high intensity and the the you could say the warm up is very close to a workout. And once they finish that, there's a couple reps and then that's it. Um so that's the first thing I want to look at. The second thing I look at is intensity. Now, what I previously did in the past, as I mentioned, is I pull back on intensity. And I typically don't want to pull back on intensity. I just want to drop the volume of high intensity that I have. So when I'm you know, 10, 14 days out, we're still running fast. We're still running 95% of our best speeds. But we're not. we're not running a ton of volume at those speeds, right? So I'm I'm, make, I'm making sure that I keep my intensity high enough. Now, the last thing I'm looking at is density. My density is going to stay the same pretty much. I want to continue with the density that I have. And if, if anything, I should tighten up the density and make it more frequent. As I begin to do shorter, more intense sessions, um, which are easier to recover from, I might increase my density. But I typically will reduce density only in the middle of training um, as I get into more functional overreaching to prevent non functional overreaching. Maybe around week four or week five, I change the density of training to from three days to two days for a week. Um, I just delete a day. And it's pretty much at the discretion of the coach. Like I got I don't really have a science behind it. Really, you know, look at those three things, uh, the, the performances, the physiological factors and the physical factors. And I decide, okay, these guys need to pull back a little bit. Um, and, and from there, like I will delete a debt. So once I get into that, I know that mainly what my taper includes is a reduction in volume, maintenance main of intensity and probably maintenance of density. Um, and also the weight room begins to change to more reactive, um, you know, higher speeds. Like our jump squats today will be around two meters per second on gym aware, um, you know, we're we're getting very, very, very fast and reactive. Now, what are the things that I'm going to see from this? So typically guys begin to say, Hey, Les, I need more. I need to, I need, I need to feel, I need to, I need to go. And the hardest thing for a coach is to look at an athlete that's high level in the eye and say, no, you're you're not going to do more. You just have to trust. And there's nothing you can do right now to make up significant changes to, to go in there and, do to do some crazy drill that's going to help you. Like, well like your your work is done. It's not completely done, but you need to begin that recovery process, allowing that system to reboot, so that we can perform. Um, you know, on that combine date. And typically, what I'll see is like when when we're on week eight, we're typically two percent away from our goal. So that means that the taper is going to give me two percent back. Now that seems like a very small amount, but it's actually a big amount. And sometimes it's an overestimation. Um, I never really see 5%. Typically, we might improve 5% over the entire uh, block, but very rarely do I see 5%. So when I get to week eight, you we start having those hard conversations like, best case scenario, this is what you run. All right, you're running 458, you might get to a 449. Might if everything is perfect if you execute this. Now there's not something that that you could do or changes drill up and get this technique down. Like if we're still on that, it's it's too late. Like I could I could negatively impact an athlete. Like that two percent is going to come from a lot of the physical readiness that we're going to experience and we're going to we're going to track throughout time. So I know I need to spike that jump momentum. Uh, I know I need to get them recovered. I know I need to get them feeling good so I can get that two percent. So what training looks like this week for me is um, maintaining intensity on Monday, Thursday. And then Saturday um, is more of a technical day. Guys leave on Sunday. So we still have three days. Intensity is still there on on Monday and Thursday. Um, It is a 55-minute session on Monday and Thursday and a 45-minute session on Saturday. Um, Volumes will be reduced by 30% from our peak. And intensities will pretty much remain the same. Right. So as we get into this period, we're also gonna see the guys begin to rebound and get pretty moody. Like their 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 hormones are starting to really um take over their minds and they begin to be pretty snappy, um, pretty competitive, kind of an asshole, right? And it's 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 something that at first we, we called it uh we called it me and Dylan called it like uh camp aggression essentially like week eight or combine aggression like you get into this period where you start to you start to battle these guys like they get very chippy with you and it's completely normal it's like part of the training process and it's it's best like the hardest thing for us to do is like be calm and not freak out and not be like man these guys aren't happy with me they're not they're just they're, they're they're young and they're going through hormonal changes again like it's just think of it that way. Like it's, it's like the kids that go through puberty and they begin to get a little chippy with you. Right. It, it's almost like that again. Um, but it's part of the adaptation process. It, it, and it's, it's positive. We want that. If we don't have that, I'm a little worried. Right. I need that. I need that to happen. It's a sign of rebounding. Right. Um, now a couple of things I look at with this is that, um, as we get into this phase, um, you know, we look at work plus rest equals adaptation is, is our recovery matching our work? And at this point, I want to say, is our recovery superseding or is it bigger than our work? Like what things can we do to recover? Um, so this is a point where, you know, we have it, we have the opportunity to, to, to get them in the pool. We're going to get them in the pool. We're going to unload those joints. Like we've looked at a lot of Randy Huntington's work in China with Su Bing, Bing Tian, um, doing a lot of recovery work in between. So if I have tempo work or if I have volume work, I try to unload them and put them in the pool and maintain the intensity, um, but get them going. So, you know, when we get to Indianapolis and we're there, the first day we get in the pool, right? I need my adaptations to come from rest and a slight micro dosing of work. And I need that work to be uh, intense and short and very aggressive. Right. So I'm I'm trying to get that adaptation now, not from a technical thing, not from a massive physical change, it's from rest. And trusting that process that athletes can, can handle that rest. Um, this is also the week where I start to say, Job's not finished. Lock in, right? Now there are things that could throw off your taper, are things that could greatly interrupt it and you know, if a guy goes out and he starts eating bad or starts drinking or starts doing things like adjusting their sleep significantly, you could see guys start to negatively impact their taper. Um, you know, and athletes get nervous. Like it's it's normal for an athlete to start to get nervous and start switching things around. But, um, you know, for example, you go to a track meet and all of a sudden your nerves have you drinking way more water than, than you're used to. And that extra water flushes out all the electrolytes in your system and you begin to cramp. And you're like, why am I cramping? I drank X amount of water. I'm doing this and I'm cramping. Well, it's because you drank too much water, right? Or it's like the athlete that goes to the track meet and begins stretching and doing all these deep, deep, deep stretches, which they're not adapted to. They're not ready for those, you know, deep stretches and they haven't been doing them. And that is a stimulus and that will negatively impact their performance. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to keep everything as close as we can to what we normally do right now we've seen like in in some sports and, and some other uh non-combine related activities that you can reduce the volume by 40 to 60 percent and you're going to see massive 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 uh increases but when i look at combine training we never really got that high in terms of volume so pouring back forty to sixty percent would look like a warm up, and that's it. So that's why we use the 30 percent um, we pull back because we're pretty conservative when it comes to volume, um, which really limits us to like three four reps, and that's it. Whatever distance we're running, um, so yeah, you we don't have like extensive volumes of you know two hour training sessions that we reduce down to an hour. No, it's it's pretty much been the same the entire time it's just the volume high intensity work does need to drop um so you know going back to the point two percent increase in in all the metrics which means that we never actually reach our peak in training and that's a tough thing for athletes to think about because if you think about it it's it's very likely that a guy that runs high four fives in training might actually run a four four at the combine and we've seen it happen we've never had somebody out before um outperform during training they've never they their pr almost always comes during competition because of their arousal state and because of the taper so we know that if an athlete has a massive pr in training then we might negatively impact their outcome right so every time these guys hit a massive peak, like when I say massive peak, like we had a guy go from 20.5 to 22.7. Okay. That's a big change. That's a big velocity change. There's about a 10 day period post that, that the nervous system is in a state of the cutter. The nervous system literally will shut down on some of these guys. And they're like, Hey, like I'm just spasming. Hey, like I'm tired or their, their eyelids begin fluttering. That's a nervous system response. That's that's an alarm and resistance phase, and it's showing us that the athlete is attempting to recover from that new peak. Now, if I have that peak too close to combine time, too close to track me, too close to the time where I need to perform, it can negatively impact that performance. So what I'm trying to do is strategically place that, that peak, that new max speed, further for, far enough away from that actual event, but also I need to stimulate something close to that throughout to make sure that I keep that performance. So uh, just like we talked about with college football, um, you know, stimulating 90% plus velocities um, at times 95% that'll maintain my speed. So once I reach that peak, once once Zach Charbonnet reached 22.7, we knew that we had to get, okay, we have to get 95% of that 22.7. So if I do the math on that real quick, if I type in, um, 22.7. 22.7. So I know I need to reach at least 21.6 miles per hour, um, which, which shouldn't be too hard for him, but I just need to touch 21.6. Um, and if I touch that within that window, then I know that he's going to maintain it. Now, if I go to 22.7 and... Throughout the rest of the training process, I'm only touching 20.5, 19.5. I am not going to be able to repeat that performance or actually do better than that performance um, at the combine. So I know I need to stimulate that or not to get the adaptation to be net positive. Um, and as we get closer, we still have to start to ramp it up and potentiate. So um, this is a very, very, very important block of training athletes to understand uh you're not trying to PR Um, you will you know sometimes a PR happens on accident cuz the guys running relaxed and they hit it but not going out there and trying to hit a new max speed max so this is um yeah this is hard and and this is something where you have to be extremely confident as a coach and you know, I tell every athlete Two things that every athlete needs to have are faith and confidence. So faith is walking into um, the darkness and still having faith that you're gonna get to the other side and that you're gonna be guided. Confidence is literally translated from, from Latin to mean with trust in God. Con uh, was with. Fid is fidelity, um, close to God. And dense uh, ents is, is You know, short for for it means God. So, with trust in God is literally translated means you have to trust you have to trust God in this in this process that you're gonna get to that point. Now, obviously, as I mentioned, if you're more than two percent away from your goal at this point, it it's pretty much you're not gonna get there. Like I'm sorry, like you're not gonna improve um, five percent in the training process in the taper. You know, it does happen six percent and all that maybe major competitions, Olympics, things like that. But, um, in the process I've seen, you haven't stressed the body enough to get to that type of performance. So, um, what we're looking for is a 2% to so being within a 2% range and then using the process of recovery to help them super compensate, but also potentiating and stimulating throughout to make sure we get to our final goal. So hopefully this helps, um, this is our, you know, last couple weeks talking about this, unfortunately, and then I'll switch gears into, you know, more NFL offseason and different types of work. But appreciate you guys listening, man. This really means a lot to me, and the feedback I've gotten has been amazing. So I really appreciate that. Uh, we'll keep it rolling, and um, yeah, let's keep it going. Thank you for listening to the Less Spalming Podcast. If you do me two massive favors. First, please rate the podcast and give it five stars if you enjoyed. If you didn't enjoy it, please still give me five stars. (laughs) Second, please share this podcast with another coach, an athlete, or parent who wants to learn how speed is developed. Thanks again for listening and check out the podcast description to learn more.